This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I mean, I'd be quite interested to take yourself back to that age and, and see how you kind of viewed the world in terms of what you cared about, how you saw um, progress, how it could be made, um, what you viewed or how you viewed um, sort of older generations and how they were doing things. I mean, what was your own perspective back then? I, you know, I was a typical, uh, you know, uh, middle class brat in a lot of ways. I mean, the difference is that today the youths are so wired that they they have everything at their fingertips, all mm-hmm. knowledge, all information, that they know the value of their voice, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me at that time, I was quite clueless to things, okay. you know. But it wasn't until maybe uh, when, I, when I got into uni and then I met some really good teachers who sort of helped me articulate, you know, my, well, at least what I wanted, you know. FM 89.9, I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat and this is the show that explores theories, concepts and society called Night School. We are joined this week by a regular friend of the show, Sandy Clark. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, this week we're going to talk a bit about uh, self-preservation and I think this is in a lot of ways in line with the underlying themes to our discussion so far, which has been about getting the right attitude to the self. And one of the reasons why I'm bringing this is that self-preservation seems to be a dominant ethos in our age of uncertainty and uh, our age of anxiety and restlessness, right? In that the more we face an uncertain world, the more we retreat inwards. Mm -hmm. And the inwardness, if you're not really properly guided, can be very, very um, disconcerting place. And this is, you know, this ties into a lot of things. So the sense that, you know, uh, we need to just be competitive, to just be thinking of ourselves, that, you know, love is not worth the risk, you know. So there's this sort of like this idea that the main outlook is basically about recoiling, mm-hmm. right? And the sort of character that's being fashioned as a result of this ethos is one that is constantly defensive and just self-preserving, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, your your insights here, given your, you know, your, your um, work as a... I guess, a, a speaker of sorts, you know, in this matters, you know, and um, having been exposed to Buddhist thought and a lot of that might have some wisdom on to um, how is it that we can make sense of this outlook? Well, thanks for that easy question to answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I might as well move in. Uh, how long have you got? Um, so... I think there's a distinction to be made. I think a lot of us now are cultivating what I would call the junk self, which if you use this analogy akin to you know junk food, healthy food. So we try to construct this idea of the self based on superficial sort of perceptions. This is how I should look. This is how I should dress. This is how I should conduct myself and speak. And so what that does is it creates this sort of superficial identity that we can cling to but it's extremely fragile and once you kind of you know crack the surface there's nothing below right, it, you know right. so that that's when you kind of can start to fall into things like you know depressions anxiety um, stress um, whereas you can cultivate a healthy sense of self 
which then allows you, it's, it's a kind of paradoxical idea, and it's found in Christianity especially, this idea that you need to sort of build yourself up like a container so that then you can sort of let go of it when you need to, right? So it's this idea that you need to contain healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. or you, Sorry, you need to build build healthy boundaries, a healthy identity. You need to know who you are mm-hmm. before you can let that go in a sense. It, it's sort of like rule breaking, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you mm-hmm. need to follow the, the rules of the road, you know? So you need to stop at the red light. Right. But once you are proficient in following the rules, then when it's midnight and no other cars are around, <laughs> then you can sort of break that. It's okay. Yeah. You know, so, so it, it's... Or drive an emergency. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's that kind of idea. <laughs> but most of us are kind of still um, premised on this idea of cultivating that kind of junk self, which leads to the problems we talked about before, like narcissism and the, the anxiety that can arise from that and the, the insecurity that can arise from that as well. Yeah. I think one of the things that I'm interested in is how the junk self that we are inclined to is premised on a lot of fear, mm-hmm. you know, because the graduation that it requires, that, that, that what you described, right, like graduating from knowing yourself to letting it go mm-hmm. requires a lot of virtues like courage. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of virtue like resolve and resilience that has to be cultivated. So in a sense, I wonder, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Yeah. Because in order for you to make that transition from the junk self to the healthy self, some sort of experimentation is needed mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of the self is known through trial and error, yeah. right? But then in order to do the experiment, you need to have the right virtues for it to go, you know, to, to happen properly, mm-hmm. right? Because you could throw yourself out there, you know, and be disappointed or be hurt, mm-hmm. you know, um, or have your ideals crushed, in which case you just... Uh, end up retreating and just cultivating the junk self so you get like instant affirmation online or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. So how about the virtues that's needed to let go of the limits, you know? How does one find them? Sure. I think before I would answer that, I would maybe throw it back to you and, and get your thoughts on why do you think that people find it so hard to cultivate these kind of virtues in the first place. I mean, one of one of the things that we see crop up time and time again is why is there no more MLKs? Why is there no more Gandhis? Mm-hmm. Why is there no more Mother Teresas? And I think part of the problem is that, you know, we don't have that inclination. We're too distracted and we're too comfortable maybe mm-hmm. to go about cultivating those kind of virtues but I, I just wonder from your experience talking to so many people um, you know day in day out um, you know why do you think we have that kind of disinclination or fear or avoidance of, of even going there I think a lot of it has to do with you know how we're socialized to become more and more atomized as well mm-hmm. you know so in order for you to go out there there must be a sense of trust in the goodness of the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that if you do want to aspire to be a Gandhi, for example, the risks are worth it because humanity is fundamentally good. Mm. That when you step outside and preach your message, mm-hmm. no matter how much it might be difficult in the beginning, there's some goodness out there to find yeah. that will eventually prove that the risks were worth it. Mm-hmm. But this requires that you do see the world enough in that you can have a fair sense of the contradictions, that there is a lot of horror, but there's still a lot of promise, right? And Gandhi was that person. I mean, he was in South Africa for a long time. Uh, He saw apartheid 
before he um, decided to to go back to um, India and and be more politically active against imperialism, right? In fact, you know, at the African National Congress, it's inspired by the Congress Party in India. So, mm. I mean, th- that's just sort of the the exposure that he had, right? But any Gandhi aside, when you look at what contemporary life does to us, it is this deepening isolation that we are slowly veering to on a daily basis, right? So whether it's social media uh, or, you know, the preference for gated communities mm-hmm. or this sort of ethos of competition that everybody is like going to kill you to get what they want, so mm-hmm. you better kill them first, you know, yeah. um, because there's so much scarcity out there. So, mm-hmm. so when you are accustomed to only this narrative, mm-hmm. it's hard to have a sober picture of the world as a complex place because the world is just dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very little good out there Mm -hmm. and this is why we go back to what you said earlier we're going to just prefer the superficial affirmations right because really it's almost like what we really think is that there's no like quality affirmations Mm -hmm. are either few and far between or non-existent so we'll just scramble for these superficial like injections of attention yeah and i think there's a there's a lack of sort of uh, moral imagination as well or, or virtuous imagination in the sense that, you know, no one reads Nietzsche anymore, but they'll read Brainy Quote because yeah. it's so much easier to get your wisdom in bite-sized <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. chunks than actually read the works. But it's also, I mean, I think that's a very great example because I see my students doing that, right? Yeah. So, in, you know, I posted History of Sexuality Volume 1 uh, for them to read and I know that all they're going to do is go to Wikipedia, yeah. Right? And even then, it's not great enough. So they go to Brainy Quote yeah, for Foucault yeah, quotes, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> because, but there's little time too, because we are just, you know, in order to consume a lot, you need to do it quickly mm-hmm. because volume depends on speed. So well, <laughs> here we yeah. are. There, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's an element of truth to that, but it's also how we manage ourselves as well. So there was a, a study done recently to suggest that on average, we can waste up to about five hours per day just mm. scrolling through social media and emails and, you know. So for people out there who are wondering, you know, how do I use my time more effectively when I have none of it, I would suggest uh, downloading. You can get these apps that monitor your time on social media and whatever else you're doing. Then by the end of the day, it gives you a kind of rundown. Okay, so it's like five hours, seven hours that you've wasted. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what, a third of a day almost. Um, yeah. that, that's during your waking time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the idea that we are sort of, you know, time poor, mm, we might want to look at that. I think we have more time than we realize. And it, so it becomes, what do you right. do with that? You know, what do you do with that? And, and what do you focus on? Um, like you say, there's this idea about competition, about keeping up with the Joneses, about, you know, making sure you have the edge and it's all about you. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so that maybe detracts from any kind of deep and meaningful, say, activism or work that you want to do. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a danger in, in thinking in those kind of binary terms that you're either out for yourself or you're purely altruistic. And um, there was some research conducted recently by Swedish and American researchers that found that within companies, the people who tend to earn more money and enjoy for, uh, greater promotions are um, unselfish givers um, who rise above even selfless givers. So mm-hmm. the distinction there is that selfless givers are those who are purely altruistic 
to the expense of themselves. Mm. Right? So unselfish givers are those who they'll still give to others, they'll still, you know, maintain good relations with others, and but they'll look after themselves as well. It never becomes an expense. So it becomes about how do we use our time in a way that benefits us mm-hmm. in productive ways and meaningful ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, a lot of these questions are circulating around, I guess, our individual efficiency, right? We've yeah. almost... We almost don't talk about collective time, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, not long ago, we have this thing called... I mean, I grew up to see this, like Rukun Tatanga, which is sort of a community effort to to make sure that the neighborhood is clean or that yeah. we all sort of look out for for the neighborhood and then mm-hmm. just, you know, check on each other when we're out away or something like that. You know, so the sense here is that time is a collective resource mm-hmm. and not just, you know... Uh, an article from Harvard Business Review on how to, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. be more productive without killing yourself, you know, mm-hmm. which is pretty much, you know, a, a constant theme there. So, you know, th- again, we go back to this, yeah. like, uh, you know, we've talked about the self largely in terms of, like, scrambles and what to, what we can preserve, yeah. you know. So from here, we're sort of, you know, I'm exposed to two different types of traditions, or at least two types of discourses that people, that are, I think, interesting options, right? So on one hand, there is this sort of... Um, this methodical attempt to face the void that you've you've talked about very persuasively, you know, which is about disciplined meditation. You know, it's about active withdrawal in ways that isn't a retreat, you know, mm-hmm. but a confrontation with the, uh, the the abyss in many ways, right? And then finding the right register of the self that is decluttered, right? But on the other hand, you also have the Nietzschean tradition where uh, it is about, you know, not giving an F is really about just being yourself and just like, you know, a kind of like disregard for, for norms and just or, or having to really be constrained by all these artificial demands from society, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of the reasons why, you know, God is dead is declared by a madman, right? <laughs> because it takes a level of craziness to just go into the marketplace and yell something so taboo, yeah. you know, and, and risk being ridiculed, mm-hmm. right? So you have sort of the... I don't know, Thich Nhat Khan kind of like model. You have a Freddie Mercury kind of model, right? Ah, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. I feel, uh, I mean, is there a Buddhist version of Freddie Mercury or something? You know, this sort of <laughs> in your face, I don't care kind of, LM, uh, you know, this performance? Or do you find them two incompatible models? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's this idea, again, um, as we've spoken about before, you know, there's a question in Buddhism about, you know, if someone becomes enlightened, how do they change or do they change? So the idea is that, okay, even when you reach the highest spiritual attainment, um, your personality doesn't change. You become sort of more of that, if anything else. Hmm. It's just that your internal, how you internalize things change. So if you're this kind of flamboyant monk who uses colorful expressions, you're not going to suddenly become Tishnan Han um, and become all calm like a peapod, yeah. you know, <laughs> sort of like, you know, just floating on the water or something. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is part of the, the, the idea of self-preservation in the Buddhist sense where it's, it's not about changing who you are. If you're someone who is flamboyant or if you're someone who's fairly neurotic or someone who's introverted or someone who's extroverted to the extreme, then it's not about changing that. It's about working with it uh-huh. in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so these things are neither bad nor good. 
right. in themselves from right. a Buddhist perspective. So you could have a very in-your-face flamboyant, but at the same time, very tranquil person. That's not incompatible in the I mean, the I've Buddhist been picture. described as that by uh, <laughs> course mates, you know. I, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I want you to describe more of that okay. uh, in the second part of the show. Uh, we are talking about self-preservation uh, this week. I'm Ahmad Farahmat with Sandy Clark on Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, I'm Ahmad Farahmat, joined this week by Sandy Clark, author, motivational speaker, trainer, um, you name it, you, you wear many hats, Sandy, so, um, but you do uh, maintain a keen interest in exploring healthy notions of self, and that's why you've been on the show so regularly, and this week we're talking about self-preservation, trying to articulate a nuance, healthy accounts of self-preservation, right, as opposed to like the panic-stricken, competitive notions of self-preservation in hope that we can kind of cultivate a gentler, fairer, but also more open self that is still at the same time cared for. Yeah. So one of the things that I find very interesting about the Nietzschean approach is that values play a very, very important role, mm-hmm. right? Because given the virtues that we need, right, like we talked about in the first part, to cultivate or to face our demons such that we can overcome them, mm-hmm. there must be an end to this. That mm-hmm. is, it can't just be because if we agree that authenticity in a lot of ways is light, right? That it is, it doesn't have sort of the loaded baggage that that sort of narcissism has, right? Then the question of achieving that has to be driven by certain values, right? Mm-hmm. And for Nietzsche, this is one of the reasons he admired the Greeks, right? It's because um, especially the Homeric Greeks, right? Not not the the Platonic the tradition or Socratic one. Uh, it was because they, there was something beyond them. Mm-hmm. That they could somehow live for, yeah, um, and that they could even face death for, right? And this frees them up from a notion of a self that is constantly like gilded, right? And this becomes like a model for Nietzsche in in facing the world, right? Where that when you know enough of it, you know what you're about, mm-hmm. and this is where he's saying become who you are is very yeah. interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So I like the paradox there, right? Because Popular self-help would prefer be who you are, right? Mm-hmm. But becoming who you are assumes that there's a part of you that isn't you, that mm-hmm. you've sort of inhabited yeah. something that's very artificial. Yeah. And the existential choice is to declutter and choose who you really are, mm-hmm. right? So become that, mm-hmm. right? But there must be something at the same time that is valued in that process mm-hmm. that is beyond the self. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense or the paradoxical that for you to be yourself, there might be something more important than you. Kind of. There's a lot of complex uh, <laughs> abstractions in there. Um, so I'll try and kind of deconstruct. Um, yeah. So I think, um, the, yeah, that's the idea of um, finding yourself to me is, is a strange notion because um, you're already there. Yeah. Wherever you go, there you are, you know. So for me, the sense of healthy self is not something that you find. It is something that you create through that exploration, through trying to find something that's bigger than yourself to serve. Yeah. Right. So that's why in, in all the main religious traditions and, and a lot of the right. philosophies, they talk about that, that idea of, of purpose, of meaning, of, of going beyond just yourself. What's the thing that you're serving that, that reaches beyond yourself? And this this is found even in positive psychology when where they emphasize a strong tie to meaning and accomplishment. You know, what are you doing that, that's mm-hmm. really sort of putting yourself out there? And that tends to help with that 
defining and creation of the self because you can't create yourself by taking 500 selfies and posting the best ones on Instagram yeah uh, doesn't really work that way yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so there is this idea of you mentioned earlier on about struggle you know and you, you find this in, in ancient Greek accounts and you know the the, the wars and the journeys mm-hmm. that all always there's a lot of kind of uh, discovering the self through adversity you know mm-hmm. what are you capable of what do you actually care about mm-hmm. when people post on Facebook you know that you, they care about the refugees or they care about this right. cause and it's sort of like how much of that is true and how much of that is superficial right. what are you actually doing you know outside of the post you know mm-hmm. because all you're doing there is really adding to the image what are you doing for yourself and for others that really makes that kind of contribution you don't start with okay, I need to cultivate these virtues yeah. and then set about you know, developing the virtues. You explore, yeah. which when you make mistakes, when you have the setbacks, if you pay close enough attention, you'll know, you'll be guided to where you need to go yeah. in order to kind of help create that sense yeah. of purposeful self. That's a really good uh, insight. Um, and it, it takes me to you know, the average 18-year-old, 19-year-old that I teach every year and that you know they realize the power of their voice and the immediate uh, impulse is to care about everything. I care about saving the dolphins. I care about saving the whales. I care about like building a socialist state. And, and my advice to them is like, it's great to care, you know, but try it slowly, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, true caring requires duration. It requires um, constantly uh, facing disappointment <laughs> that your ideals are, you know, easily uh, deflated, <laughs> you know, because the world is very, very difficult, right? And uh, people too are disappointing. Nothing disappoints more than people, you know, but uh, they're still worth it, right? So, um, like you said, finding our values is really a test of what time shows us to ultimately care about the most. Yeah. And that's not everything. Typically, it's one or two things, mm-hmm. right? And they shine like nothing else, right? And this is what has spoken to you over time, and this is what you're going to serve, yeah. right? Um, but uh, there must be a submission to the journey that's very important, yeah. you know, um, rather than just, like, choosing the flavor of the week or the activist cause of the month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where Nietzsche is also very telling in that one of the ways in which you know what to serve is the degree to which you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Right. So this is where uh, the Greeks are always a useful resource for him and why he tends to tragedy. Yeah. Right. Because making the right choices sometimes requires that you face tragedy, <laughs> right? Yeah. That you don't know what's valuable until you know what it, what it means to lose. Yeah. Right. And yeah. not just to lose something you possess, but to have just been defeated. Yeah. Right. And it's at those moments that what you care about glows, mm-hmm. right? And it's usually, again, the two or three things. It's not like the multitude of shareable links. Yes, yeah. I mean, just to bring back uh, to your point about teaching the 18 and 19-year-olds, I mean, I'd be quite interested to take yourself back to that age and and see how you kind of viewed the world in terms of what you cared about, how you saw um, progress, how it could be made, um, what you viewed, or how you viewed um, sort of older generations and how they were doing things. I mean, what was your own perspective back then? I you know, I was a typical... uh you know, uh, middle-class brat in a lot of ways. I mean, the difference is that today, the youths are so wired that they they have everything at their fingertips, all mm-hmm. knowledge, all information, that they know the value of their voice, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me at that time, I was quite clueless to things, okay. you know. But it wasn't until maybe uh, when, I, when I got into uni and then I met 
some really good teachers who sort of helped me articulate, you know, my, well, at least what I wanted, you know. But in that sense, I've been blessed too to have the right sort of friends to kind of help me refine my anxieties, you know, mm-hmm. and understand what is act- actually driving or behind the restlessness, you know. And that's a privilege that's not accorded to a lot of people, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I think a lot of people want or have that impulse to explore. But mm-hmm. you need a lot of guidance to face things, yeah, especially yeah. like in a world that's very, very unforgiving, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I've just had some lucky turns, you know, but um, because I teach the question of development or self-cultivation is very important, especially mm-hmm. if you teach in the humanities. Yeah. It's not just about banking mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, or it's yeah. not about just like accumulating facts. It's really about making sure this person has a clearer view of the vastness of things out there, you know, interface yeah. it without intimidation, you know. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's the, the, the original. I, mean, I think the, the, the root meaning of the word you know, education comes from you know, the, the idea to educe, to, to bring out from someone. So rather than, so education should be about more about that bringing out of people rather than putting in, in a sense, so they, they, they become more aware of who they are, where they're coming from at a particular stage in their development. And when it comes to 18, 19-year-olds, I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Eric Erickson, mm-hmm. uh, the developmental psychologist. And so it's around this age that everything starts to become kind of black and white. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's like, and this is where you're trying to find your identity, uh, your place in the world. So when... You see injustice when you see, um, you know, wrongdoing as you perceive it. it. You know, the question is, well, why can't it just be changed? Right. Why, right. why, why can't the governments just get together, you know, sing Kumbaya or, you know, and just have a campfire with yeah. a few guitars and, and sort their differences? But of course, the more you progress and the, the older you become, the more you start to realize the nuances and the complexities. And so you start to see that actually, you know, the, the, there's much more to the world than you realize, but there's also much more to yourself right, than you right. realize, you know? And yeah. so you become a lot less shouty and a lot less opinionated in a sense yeah. if you've paid attention to uh, what's going on yeah. within you in that sense. But one of the things that has changed considerably for me is my sense of time. Mm. I think youth has this contradiction where on one hand, time seems like perennial, it seems like endless, mm. but on the other hand, time also feels finite. Like, you, you want things quickly, like you said, yeah. you know. So you straddle that contradiction. Um, but I think one thing age does, or, hopes, you know, ostensibly it should, is for you to, to find a fair balance between the two. On one hand, there's a lot that can be done. On the other hand, you don't have to rush, mm-hmm. right? And in that sense, I kind of get it a little better now than when I was yeah. 18. Uh, but I do want to get back to the question of values from the Buddhist perspective, because it seems to me that it isn't really a religion of commandments in the Old Testament sense. No. Um, but on the other hand, there's a certain sort of discipline it demands too. Mm-hmm. So what are Buddhist values exactly? Well, essentially the Buddha, uh, once he realized whatever he realized, he basically said to people, look, here's how it is. Follow it if you like or don't. I don't care. I'm enlightened anyway. So, you know, have fun. <laughs> uh, so there's no there, there's no sense of divinity in traditional Buddhism. Of course, there are other elements of Buddhism that have been shaped by culture since, like you find it in Tibetan Buddhism, for example. There is a lot of this kind of thing. But in traditional conservative Buddhism, if you like, there's none of that. So, so the values of Buddhism, it's really basic. It's you know, you, you begin with goodness, right? And there's there's an interesting thought experiment that you can try. So 
when you think about what it means to be a good person, how would you define that? I guess responsibility is key up there, mm. right? Uh, being responsible. Um, also, I think, um, I guess that that springs up the most. And of course, I think the other thing that's really crept out in my in my thinking a lot more is, is care mm-hmm. as opposed to love. So I feel that love has been so colonized by consumer culture. Mm-hmm. And it's good. Love is, you know, it's good to have. But I wonder if care can fill in a lot of the blanks that uh, mm-hmm. the love discourse can't. Yeah. You know, like the way in which popular culture speaks of love, you know, I find it's very, very stifling in a lot of ways. But yeah. care opens up different dimensions for mm-hmm. for richer discussions. So I guess those two things, responsibility and care. So on the other hand, how would you define, uh, you know, quote unquote, bad person or what it means to be bad? Uh, cruelty. Okay. Anything else? I don't know. I mean, like my threshold for... <laughs> For coping with so-called bad people is quite high. So, okay, okay. Uh, largely because I think nobody's that bad, by okay, and large. Okay. Maybe that's just uh, that's just like a fallacy in my thinking. But cruelty is where I draw the line. If this mm. person indulges mm. in inflicting harms, mm. then I go, all right, this person is bad. Yeah. But otherwise, everybody's like lost somehow. You yeah. know. So you just got to make room for them to like pick up. You know. Yeah. Okay. So you're far too enlightened for this question. <laughs> <laughs> so. What, what, what were you aiming at? What were you aiming so, at? So usually when I ask people this question, they can rattle off like seven, eight adjectives oh, to describe okay. a bad person. This is what it means to be bad. I know 10 people like this. Um, you know, <laughs> my boss is like this. My, my, my husband or my wife is like this. But when you say, okay, so what does it mean to be a good person? And they struggle. So mm-hmm. they may only come up with one or two adjectives. Right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we are so kind of wired towards focusing on the negative anyway you know so right right so buddhism tries to bring you back to kind so the foundational value of buddhism when you because it's a gradient uh, teaching in a sense so you start off with one thing and, you, and then it builds so the, the the foundational quality or value of um buddhism is begins with generosity mm. that idea of mm. unselfish mm-hmm. giving you know so you don't lose yourself in the mix so mm-hmm. christianity mm-hmm. says you know do unto others as you know you'd have them do unto you right but the problem with that is you then focus primarily on the others in buddhism it kind of mm-hmm, you're included mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, interesting so, interesting so when people say may all beings be happy and free from suffering um the kind of pure buddhist perception of that would be to include yourself because mm-hmm. you're a part of that you know so that idea of you know bringing that back to like um self-acceptance self-care is not that it's, it's it's selfish in a sense but it's you start off with yourself so that then you can kind of spread it around where it becomes a problem is where you kind of contain it within yourself mm-hmm. i'm just going to look after me i'm just going to worry about me so the foundational right, right. so the foundational value of of, of buddhism really is, is generosity right. um and then it goes into things like compassion yeah um, kindness. Um, in fact, kindness is a huge thing. So um, there's a, a, a book that myself and uh, another regular guest of the show, uh, Dr. Eugene T, have written. And, um, you know, it, it's out next year. And um, we had a, a Buddhist monk called uh, Ajahn Brahmali who's written the foreword. And he makes an interesting point to say that, you know, the more mindful you become, the more kind you are. But it also works in the reverse. So if you are a kind person, huh. um, the, the more kind you are, the more mindful you become. Right, right. You know? So that that's the kind of root value of, of, of mindfulness in a sense. I like that a lot, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I like generosity, you know. 
in the way you you framed it, you know, because in order for you to be comfortable being generous, again, we goes it goes back to the, your attitude to the world that mm-hmm. there's enough out there. Yeah, you know, there's enough out there for me and another person, or for mm-hmm. for me and a community. Yeah, and this is a very very powerful statement to make because the way that we organize today in consumer society is that everything is so scarce. Time is scarce. Resources are scarce. Space is scarce. I mean, there's like traffic jams and gated communities everywhere. So really cultivating generosity is, is I think, a very powerful statement of protest against that that Mm -hmm. presumption, you know, that there's always not enough, right? Whereas generosity, for it to really work, you got to believe that there's always enough. If if there isn't, you got to make sure that there can be. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it sets you on a trajectory that constantly opens yourself up to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to quote unquote more, not just for you to scramble for yourself, but for you to make room for others. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's a really good book that people can pick up. It's by Adam Grant, who's a, a professor at Wharton, and he wrote a book called Give and Take. And so the premise of the book is it examines how um, people who are more generous usually tend to benefit a lot more in the long run in terms of um, well-being, contentment, even uh, material success mm-hmm. um, than those than those who take over time. Right. Speaking of time, I can't be any more generous now because <laughs> uh, we've reached an end. But always a pleasure, Sandy Clark. Do you want to plug your uh, LinkedIn and Instagram? Always, uh, always. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I'm I'm always on LinkedIn where I share stuff on things like mindfulness and Great. psychological Great. well-being. So they can just find me under my name and uh, connect from there. Wonderful. You can email the show at bfmnightschool@gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook as well. Just type Night School in the search space or download our app at the Apple App Store or the uh, iTunes App Store as well. I'm Ahmad Farahmat alongside Sandy Clark, and we're talking about. Finding the right registers of self-preservation on Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.